You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 2. Hi, Mike McGill here. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. Our feature this month is a discussion between my co-host Bill Olver of PubK with my Art on Porter colleagues Tirza Loller and Christian Sheehan, in which they cover several important developments related to the False Claims Act, including the key takeaways from the Department of Justice's annual report and the background on and implications of the major FCA-related cases before the Supreme Court. As they'll discuss, those cases have the potential to significantly impact the application of the FCA's knowledge or scienter element and the ability of the DOJ to dismiss FCA cases brought by relators. Bill introduces Tirza and Christian at the beginning of their conversation, so I'll keep this short. Tirza and Christian are both highly experienced False Claims Act litigators, and one of the many things that distinguishes them from other FCA practitioners is that they focus primarily on FCA cases that involve procurement matters, as distinguished from FCA cases that relate only to billing under federally funded healthcare programs like Medicare and Medicaid. As a result, while Tirza and Christian are white-collar litigators, they're well-versed in the procurement world. Here's Bill's conversation with Tirza and Christian. After their conversation, I'll be back with some additional thoughts on the FCA and what all these developments might mean for contractors. Welcome back to Season 2 of Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the PubK Group. During this episode, I'll be talking with attorneys from Arnold and Porter about recent developments involving the False Claims Act. A few weeks ago, the Department of Justice released its FCA recovery stats for last year. We'll take a look at the surprising numbers and the story behind them. And we also have an unusual situation at the Supreme Court with the justices considering multiple circuit splits involving FCA issues. This term, the court is examining a circuit split over the knowledge standard as well as multiple interpretations of the government's ability to dismiss key TAM complaints over the objections of a relator. Joining me today to break it all down are two members of Arnold and Porter's False Claims Act practice, practice co-chair Tirza Lawler and partner Christian Sheehan. And so let's start with some introductions. Uh, Tirza, Tirza's practice concentrates on white-collar defense, internal and government investigations and trial work. During her career, she has handled every stage of investigation and litigation under the FCA and other related proceedings. Her work also includes complicated issues involving government contracts and procurement fraud, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and similar global anti-corruption legislation, tax fraud, and antitrust offenses. Welcome, Tirza. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be here. And next, we have partner Christian Sheehan. Christian focuses his practice on FCA defense and has represented clients in fraud matters involving government contracts and procurement, disaster recovery work, pharmaceutical pricing and sales, and the anti-kickback statute. He has represented clients at every phase of a False Claims Act matter, from persuading the government not to intervene to winning a trial and, when necessary, winning on appeal. He's also the managing editor of Arnold and Porter's Keynotes blog, which regularly addresses significant FCA developments and which we refer to often on our podcast. So welcome, Christian. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be with you. Okay, so let's start with the numbers. A few weeks ago, DOJ released its report on FCA recoveries for 2022, 
And a lot of people were surprised at the dramatic drop in the total dollar amount the government recouped from fraud cases. So what did those numbers look like, Christian? Well, so I have to say we weren't particularly surprised because we at our own importer have a have a blog that tries to track uh, recoveries as they come in. And we expected this was going to be a down year for, for DOJ, and it was. So this was, I think, the second lowest year on record since we started tracking back in in 2009, it's down to $2.2 billion, which, you know, is still an awful lot of money. But to put it in perspective, last year we had over $4, 4 billion in recovery. So so it's a big drop. In terms of what explains the drop, you know, it's hard to say. Usually the numbers are driven by um, what we call blockbuster recoveries, right? So hundreds of millions of dollars. And there were just fewer of them this year um, than there have been in past years. So the split in terms of industries that we're seeing enforcement activity in is pretty similar. The overwhelming majority is from the healthcare industry, and then a much smaller sliver is from uh, the defense industry, and then what DOJ calls other, which is basically every agent, affected agency other than HHS and DOD. So did we see any trends with procurement-related recoveries or cases, anything that really stood out? Honestly, not really. Um, there were only two defense settlements, at least by our count, that were over $10 million last year, which is, you know, relatively low. The most interesting thing that we're seeing in the data this year is there's a huge uptick in recoveries from non-ETAM cases. So that's cases that are brought directly by DOJ. So in cases involving government contractors, we can see direct cases from arising out of things like PCA audits, uh, Form 1s, contracting officers' decisions, disallowing costs. And we've seen an uptick in recoveries in actions brought directly by DOJ. And frankly, that wasn't all that surprising because we've seen in 2021 and 2020 an increase in direct cases brought by DOJ. So now what we're seeing is sort of the fruits of those cases in increased recoveries. But in terms of trends targeting specific, you know, subsectors of government contracts and procurement, we're not, not really seeing any any significant trends there. Did we see any greater impact on small businesses or individuals this year? Okay, I read some analysis that said it looked like uh, some small businesses got hit a little more than some of the large firms. Did you notice that in your analysis? I'm going to ask Tirza if she has a, any thoughts on that one. You know, um, Bill, I'm not aware of any specific analysis, but I will say the other headline takeaway from last year is while the the dollars recovered was a you know it was a it was a down year for DOJ as as Christian said, there were many more cases that were resolved this past year. So many more cases are being resolved, but the overall recoveries are smaller. So what that says to me is that there were more cases where where there were smaller dollars recovered, which could have stemmed from, you know, more cases against individuals or small businesses. But we haven't dug in to that specific question to determine if my um, hypothesis is correct. Right. Sounds reasonable. So with that, uh, one, one last, uh, one last uh, item on, on the numbers. Now, with the numbers being lower, unsurprisingly, the, the plaintiff's bar had a lot to say about that. The sky is falling. Uh, what a disgrace this was. Um, are these numbers great news for defendants? Are they terrible news for the plaintiff's bar and relators? 
I mean, my personal view is that while fewer dollars recovered is generally a good thing for the defense bar, I don't think you can draw significant takeaways. I mean, it's not as if the government is has lost its appetite to bring False Claims Act cases. In their annual um, release of the stats, they highlighted that they paid out $488 million to relators last year. So while they took in less money, they paid out a little bit more. They are obviously very interested in, you know, the relators bar continuing to bring cases to them. I think when you are a defendant and in an investigation or a litigation, you know, the fact that at the end of the year, the department might have an overall lesser recovery um, writ large isn't going to be much solid. Like if you're in the middle of an FCA investigation, you are, you know, under the microscope, you're spending a lot of money trying to defend the case. Um, I don't think that there's really any takeaway here in terms of, you know, enforcement is going to be led up this, you know, in the next few years. Yeah. And I would, I, I agree with Tirza. And I would just say, I mean, the numbers add them flow, right? So if we're sitting here two years from now and we see two consecutive years with a number that's something like this, then maybe we're having a different conversation. But I think it's hard to draw any conclusions just based on, on one year. And if I could add one more thing, Bill, before we move on to the next topic, in terms of things that we're watching um, that could be an, a significant area of FCA enforcement, I think we're going to see more cybersecurity cases in the coming years. DOJ announced their civil cyber fraud initiative back in the fall of 21. We haven't seen very many cases. In fact, I think there's only been one settlement since the initiative was announced. Um, but we know this is something that's on industry's mind. We know this is something that uh, the Related Bar is talking about in terms of a new area of FCA enforcement. The other thing I would say, it's probably a little less relevant for your audience here, um, we're also seeing a number of PPP, False Claims Act cases, Paycheck Protection Program cases, including this year we saw the first settlement ever um, with a lender. Um, so most of the cases have been against the borrowers, but we saw um, a bank actually settle an FCA case last year. Excellent. That's a good breakdown on the numbers. So let's turn to the Supreme Court and their consideration of some meaty issues. First up, the court is considering appeals from the plaintiffs in Procter v. Safeway and Shooty v. Supervalue. Uh, in both these cases, the plaintiffs alleged that the supermarket chains had defrauded Medicare and Medicaid by overcharging the government for generic drugs. However, the Seventh Circuit, in identical two-to-one decisions, found that the defendants had objectively reasonable interpretations of the government's rules for reporting the prices they offered to non-government customers. Now, while the interpretations were incorrect, the circuit concluded that they were reasonable. Now, both these decisions uh, drew strongly worded dissents from Judge David Hamilton. Uh, he argued that the majority opinions would create a new safe harbor, allowing defendants to intentionally submit false claims and then post hoc piece together a rationale for their conduct, assuming they are caught. And he also argued that the decision rendered actual knowledge and deliberate ignorance superfluous to the standard. The Solicitor General and Senator Chuck Grassley, who we'll discuss in a few minutes, I'm sure, urged the court to take up the cases which it has done. So, Christian, what are the what are the possible outcomes here? What are the what are the issues and, and possible outcomes? 
Sure. So, and I guess I'll start with the issue. So the, you know, the question, the way the question's presented is frankly a little bit unfavorable from the defendant's standpoint. And the, the question is whether and when a defendant's subjective understanding or beliefs about the lawfulness, lawfulness of his conduct are relevant. And that's frankly an oversimplification of the issue, right? The issue isn't whether subjective knowledge is ever relevant. Of course it is. It's in the statute. If you say you're providing one thing and you know you're providing something else, that's sort of a quintessential False Claims Act violation. The issue with these cases is what happens when the alleged fraud is based on noncompliance with an unclear law. Right. So an unclear statute, regulation or contract term. And the Supreme Court in a case called Safeco, which is not a False Claims Act case, it was a case under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, said that if you have an objectively reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous law, you don't act knowingly. And knowingly is the same term that's in the False Claims Act. So most cases... Frankly, we would say every circuit court to seriously consider the issue has said that applies to the False Claims Act. And so that's really the issue before the Supreme Court is whether to adopt this Safeco framework for the False Claims Act. So what are the possible outcomes? The court could adopt Safeco in full, the court could reject Safeco in full, or there could be something in between. I think something in between is probably most likely. Let's say Let's take the worst outcome, right, for contractors. If the court says Safeco doesn't apply, that would create additional potential liability under the FCA, or at a minimum, mean that there are more cases that are going past the motion to dismiss or going past summary judgment, which means it's a lot more expensive to defend False Claims Act cases and might mean that companies are more inclined to settle. So, I mean, there are myriad complex regulations that government contractors are required to comply with, even, you know, regulations that have very little to do with what they've actually contracted to do. And rarely are those, uh, I want to say crystal clear, rather than the, rarely are those even remotely clear. And Safeco provides a safe harbor that if there is an objectively reasonable interpretation of a law that's later determined to be wrong, that you have some protection. And if Safeco doesn't apply in the False Claims Act context, then that creates, um, you know, that does create some additional risk. The flip side, right, is if the court adopts Safeco in its entirety, that is, there's really not a huge change in the state of play in the circuits, because most have adopted Safeco, now it's just the law of the land, right? So DOJ and the Relators Bar are fighting this hard, even though most circuits have said Safeco applies. So there will be, even if Safeco applies, I'm sure, plenty of litigation in lower courts about what exactly that means. Um, but that certainly would be a positive development for companies that are subject to all sorts of complicated regulations. I guess in an ideal world, maybe it would have the effect of encouraging agencies to be a little bit more clear, but that's probably uh, wishful thinking. Yeah. And of course, the if they do need to update their regulations, the, that that's going to grind slowly. That's that's a lot of a lot of agencies with a lot of rules. 
Yes, so, that is certainly true. Yeah. So um, now, as I mentioned before, Senator Chuck Grassley, he's already promising FCA amendments to address what he's calling ju- judicial decisions that undermine the purpose of the FCA. Now, I, I think he's committed, but what do you what what do you are your thoughts on what that might look like? Like how how would such legislation be uh, structured um, you know, as far as say modifying intent requirements? Um, you know, Judge Hamilton knows it when he sees it, but that's uh, not <laughs> that's probably not the technical fix we need. Um, yes, so uh, you you probably know this bill, but um, Senator Grassley was actually a relator himself at one point, which perhaps explains. Uh, his fondness for the statute. But, I mean, I think as we all know that he was the architect of the 1986 amendments, which strengthened the statute. And he's been involved in sort of every significant amendment since then. In 2021, he proposed some pretty significant amendments to the statute. And those eventually made it through the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. But it was a significantly watered down version. And that was due to significant Republican opposition in committee. Those amendments never went anywhere once they got, once they were reported out of committee. Um, there was never a Senate vote. And then obviously, even if they passed the Senate, right, they'd have to go to the House. So, um, I'm, sh- I will not at all be surprised if Senator Grassley does introduce new legislation on on the FCA, and if there's an unfavorable decision from his standpoint, a pro-defense decision in the Schutte and Proctor cases, then that those amendments would probably include something on Sienter. But based on you know the traction that the past amendments got, I would be surprised if they make it out of the Senate. And um, if anyone thinks any significant legislation is is coming out of this uh, Congress, you're you're a little more optimistic than I am. Um, so I, I guess I would be surprised if there's any, if there are any amendments to the False Claims Act that are actually, actually passed into law in the next couple of years. But, I, but I'm sure that Senator Grassley will try and have something to say. Thanks. Thanks, Christian. Let's move on to the other case before the Supreme Court. The justices also decided to weigh in on the government's authority to dismiss KETAM cases over the objection of the relator. Now, the circuit courts have adopted many interpretations of this authority. As background, the FCA says that the government may dismiss a KETAM complaint if the relator has been notified of the government's motion and if the court has given the relator the opportunity for a hearing on the motion. However, the statute doesn't say anything about the nature of the hearing, what the government must demonstrate when it seeks dismissal, nor what a court should consider when it evaluates the motion, and that has left the door open for a lot of different interpretations uh, at the circuits. The D.C. Circuit says that the government has an unfettered right to dismiss a complaint and that the hearing is basically a formality that allows the relator the chance to convince the government to change its mind. Now, the Ninth and Tenth Circuits uh, have a more strict standard. They say that the government must show a valid purpose for the dismissal and a rational connection between the dismissal and that purpose. And if the government can make that showing, then the burden shifts to the relator. Senator Chuck Grassley has proposed amendments to the FCA that would adopt that interpretation, even though there are still some specifics to fill in. Now, we also have the Third and Seventh Circuit, and they say if the government seeks dismissal before the defendant has responded to the complaint, 
the relator must be given a hearing, but no judicial inquiry is required. If the government moves to dismiss after the defendant has responded, the hearing may consider what terms of dismissal are proper. And then most recently, the First Circuit jumped in with a distinct standard holding that the burden is always on the relator to convince the government to withdraw its motion or show the court that the government is acting arbitrarily or illegally. So uh, in the case before the court, Polanski versus Executive Health Resources, the relator is arguing that the government does not have the authority to dismiss a complaint when it declines to intervene in the first case, and the justices will consider that argument as well as which of the multiple standards should apply. Now, Tears, I'm I am a not an attorney, but when I look at these standards, they seem like they are uh, a distinction without a real distinction. Uh, as far as the government can do what it wants, or it has to have a hearing and then it can do what it wants. So, <laughs> what, what do you? What are what are your thoughts on on these various standards and how this ended up before the court? Well, you know, I would agree with you, Bill. Um, I think when the rubber meets the you know meets the road. There's not a lot of daylight between these different standards. I mean, the, the most strict is that the government has to show a legitimate government purpose and a rational relationship between the dismissal and achieving that government purpose. Um, at the argument, which was held in early December, that very point was made by, by, I think, a couple of the justices, right? Justice Gorsuch. Normally, when we invoke rational basis review, it's pretty cursory, pretty quick, and the government always wins. So as a practical matter, um, you know, there's not there isn't going to be as significant of an impact um, from this case as there will be from the Schutte and Proctor cases that Christian just spoke about. And frankly, the Supreme Court granted cert in Plansky first. And then only very recently granted cert to decide the two Sienter cases. Personally, I was a little disappointed when the court picked Polanski because historically, the court, you know, for the last 15 years or so, as far as I know, the court has only granted cert in one or fewer False Claims Act cases a term. So when they granted in Polanski, we assumed we weren't going to get a grant in the Sienter cases because there were there have been a number of Sienter cases that have been um, filed or, you know, petitions have been filed and the, the court has turned them down. So when they grant when they granted in Polanski, we thought, OK, we're not going to get a Sienter grant. There are also petitions um, regarding the correct application of Rule 9B, the requirement that fraud cases must be pled with particularity. There have been a number of those petitions. We assume, you know, we'll have to wait some time to get a grant in those cases. So back to back to Polanski, I would agree with you, Bill. It's it's not going to have a significant impact in part because of what you what you flagged, that there's not a lot of difference between these standards. But also, who are we kidding? The government rarely exercises this this authority, much to the chagrin of the defense bar. Um, Even over the last three years, we saw like a bit of an uptick, call it. I don't know, Christian, what, 1918? I want to say, say 19 after the, the so-called Granston memo, which, I think, you know, got people's hopes up. We did. We saw a slight uptick. But, I mean, that uptick was due, you know, in large part to this group of cases that was brought by a by entities that were formed for the specific purpose of filing false claims act cases. And they had some 
let's just say questionable methods of gathering information. <laughs> so a lot of the uptick was due to, you know, DOJ wanting to get rid of that bucket of cases. Vertiers uh, is exactly right. Other than that, I mean, you know, DOJ just doesn't do this very often. Is there any scenario, and I cannot imagine one, but is do you do you see any scenario where where the court is going to curtail the government's authority over key TAM cases? Because Plansky is making a very interesting argument that when the government declines to intervene, too bad, so sad. That's That was your shot, and now you have to ride it out. Of course, you know, by definition, the key TAM case belongs to the government. So Absolutely. now this court has been a little bit of a wild card last last year. So I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to put a dollar on the table, but I, I don't see any scenario um, where that happens. Do you do you see that? No, I mean, and and also you could see it in the in the uh, transcript from the hearing. I think what was a little surprising to me is how much discussion there was around what the government would have to show in order to intervene and move to dismiss the case, um, you know, farther along in the case. It, it seemed that this concept gained a bit of traction with more than one of the justices that the government would have to make a showing of something like good cause to explain why it did not move to dismiss at the beginning, right? Why it declined and then let the case percolate a little bit and then only then came in and sought to exercise its dismissal authority. Um, there was, you know, conversations or comments by various uh, justices in terms of, well, you know, surely if there were new, if new evidence came to light, that that would provide a basis for the government to essentially change its mind. Um, so I think there is a real possibility that the court will impose some sort of requirement that the government makes some sort of showing in terms of coming in a little bit later in the case to exercise the dismissal authority. In terms of the dismissal authority, what the standard's going to be, I, I think it's, I think they will absolutely still have the ability, even if it's rational basis. And again, there was a lot of discussion around that. And you heard what I said about, you know, Gorsuch's, his, right. what his quote was. I mean, the the DOJ is still going to have the power to move to dismiss. Right. Well, excellent. Well, that brings us to the end of our time. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Tirza and Christian, for your analysis and, and uh, bringing us up to date on what's going on with the Supreme Court. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. Mike here again. That was a great discussion between Bill Tirza and Christian. There are significant developments on the False Claims Act front every year. But this year is likely to be particularly important in light of the Supreme Court decisions. Quick venting on the knowledge or scienter issue. My concern, which I know many share, is the conflating of the knowledge or scienter prong and the falsity prong of the FCA. One problem with the statute and the case law is the failure to adequately distinguish between those prongs. As you heard from the prior discussion, one of the central issues in the Santer cases before the Supreme Court is whether the standard that was applied in the court's 2007 Safeco decision which related to Santer under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, should be applied to the FCA. In Safeco, the Supreme Court said, quote, Santer cannot be shown as a matter of law if the defendant's conduct was consistent with a reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous legal requirement, end quote. Think about that for a minute. Is that standard really about knowledge or Santer? Or should it be about knowledge or Santer? The defendant's conduct was, quote, consistent with a reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous legal requirement, end quote, 
then claims submitted based on that conduct are, I would argue, by definition, not false. Falsity is a separate element from scienter. And if the falsity element fails, the scienter elements are relevant, at least as far as FCA liability is concerned. If the government or relators want to allege that a contractor submitted a false claim based on the express or implied promise of compliance with a regulatory or contractual requirement, they should have to identify a clear standard that was breached. If there are multiple reasonable interpretations of an ostensible requirement, then taking one interpretation should not result in a claim being deemed false. The onus should be on the government to make its requirements clear. If there's more than one interpretation of a requirement, that it's not clear, and the government should resolve the ambiguity. I would go so far as to say an ostensible requirement that's unclear is not a requirement unless and until it's clarified. Who benefits from ambiguous requirements? Maybe relator counsel? Government agencies generally do not. If an agency wants a contractor to do A, it does not benefit from a regulation or contract clause that could be interpreted to allow the contractor to do A or B. And it's unfair for a contractor to be deemed non-compliant, let alone to be deemed to have committed fraud for doing B instead of A. A contractor should not face draconian FCA liability or the potential for draconian FCA liability for alleged non-compliance with an ostensible requirement that's unclear. It's possible that the scienter or knowledge cases before the Supreme Court will be resolved in a way that helps contractors in the scenario in which a requirement's ambiguous. However, at some point, it would be great to have a clearer line between the falsity element and the knowledge or scienter element of the False Claims Act. And perhaps even more importantly, more clarity around what is false and what is not false. And that's even before getting into the related but distinct materiality element. To place all of this into context, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already appreciate the potential for these Supreme Court cases to affect federal contractors. The FCA is in a sense a sort of Damocles hanging over every contractor. Contractors have to be cognizant of the ever-present risk that a routine non-compliance issue can be turned into an issue of alleged fraud. Supreme Court precedent that narrows the knowledge or center element could help to rein in the FCA threat at least to a degree. We have focused on an array of current and proposed compliance obligations on this podcast over the last year, from the requirements related to covered telecom equipment and services implementing Section 889, to the current DFAR cybersecurity requirements and the forthcoming CMMC requirements, to the new twist on contractor affirmative action obligations, to special sourcing rules, to allowability of increased costs resulting from the pandemic and economic fallout from it, and that's just to name a few. The FCA decisions will not change any of those things. They won't change the requirements imposed through the FAR or the DFARs or other agency FAR supplements, won't change the latest OFCCP guidance or new SBA regulations. But the Supreme Court decisions will be highly relevant to companies that are responsible for complying with these requirements. For now, contractors should continue to consider whether and to what extent to document their understanding of potentially ambiguous requirements, and then seeking input from customers or regulators where it's prudent and it makes sense. To further weave things together, the relationship between the False Claims Act and the complex requirements that apply to federal procurements, underscored by the DOJ's annual report, which Christian and Tierzin Bill discussed earlier. Circle back to that quickly. The DOJ used the opportunity of the report to again flag the first settlement under the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. That settlement was for approximately $1 million, 
and related to alleged noncompliance with information security requirements for work performed at facilities in Iraq and Afghanistan. The cybersecurity requirements that apply to government contractors are arguably ripe with ambiguities. That also could be said about the government's rules related to the classification of companies that are treated as small businesses for purposes of federal procurement. DOJ highlighted a roughly $50 million settlement with a contractor alleged to have abused the rules around small business contracting opportunities and also a company executive that was involved. This is not news, but the FCA is being applied to the complex contractual and regulatory regimes that we discuss on this podcast, and the Supreme Court's decisions will have important implications for the way the FCA is applied. Finally, there's one last FCA-related update. This one's more concrete and narrower. At the end of January, the Department of Justice updated the FCA penalties to account for inflation as required by statute. The minimum increased from 12537 to 13508 and the maximum increased from 25076 to 27018 Those apply to any penalties assessed after January 30th of this year for conduct that occurred after November 2nd of 2015. FCA penalties apply to each separate violation of the FCA, which can in some cases mean each invoice deemed tainted by fraud. While the penalties for a single violation may be modest in comparison to the government's damages, the penalties can add up quickly where there's repeated violations or a pattern of violations are alleged. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. If you're interested in learning more about these subjects, please check out our show notes where you'll find links to background materials and other information related to the subjects that we covered in this episode. Both PubK and Arnold and Porter are continuously tracking developments on the FCA front. You can see Tirza and Christian's take on the Supreme Court arguments and the ultimate decisions on the firm's keynotes blog. So bookmark that website. Thanks again to Bill, Tirza, and Christian. Thanks to you for listening to this episode of Bonafide Needs. We hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts and look for new episodes soon. Until then. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the PubK Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer.